0: Okay, let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you govern all things, both in heaven and on earth. Mercifully, hear the supplications of your people, and in our time, grant us your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So... I've entitled. I, I usually don't even entitle my. I don't. I don't title my sermons. But uh, I've entitled this one: "The Power of Freedom," uh, and fr- and and this freedom which grace brings does it it, it brings much power with it uh, in that freedom. I went to, uh, as you know, I went to uh, Reformed Theological Seminary, and I'm and I think I may have uh, used this as an illustration before. But it, it 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 shocks my senses when uh, recounting it. One of my professors, he was a visiting professor, who is the uh, it's Dr. Stephen Nichols, who is um, the I th- I I think I understand this correctly. He's the head of Reformation Bible College, which is RC Sproul's Bible College that was started not so long ago, um, and he has some other things. When you're if you're a RC Sproul fan, you'll see Dr. Stephen Nichols now in some of those things. Um. When, when he was teaching one of our classes, um, he talked about as a young man, his grandfather had uh, was a collector of uh, albums, those LPs. The, and he had thousands of those things, and um, uh, Doctor Nichols would listen to these uh, records and grew to know like uh, composers and what have you. So this is this was this. Was, you're hearing if you're hearing this, you're saying, okay, so this must have been classical music then that he, and I don't know what all kinds of music he had, but the the classical music is what was uh, his favorite, and he would he began to know and learn more about that and had a great appreciation of music and uh, when he came to Christ, um, he ran onto an older man who wanted to mentor him. And so this older man said, "What you need to do is get rid of those records and quit listening to that music." And and, and this, you know, it kind of makes you think of of, of those uh, things that my cousins listened to in the seventies that you had to get rid of that because that was the devil's music. No, I don't. I don't even think that's what this was. I think this was the, this was uh, classical music. But the the mentor suggested he get rid of it, and so he wanted to be obedient to Christ he He wanted to he had a great love for the lord and and so he did what he thought he should do and he got rid of all those things and uh he didn't have a, a great understanding of what the bible talked about it and and evidently his mentor didn't either that's the sad part i think uh, of that story but I think that story Says much about the state of the church today, and, and especially the state of our local church. And I, and I don't I, I don't want to come off as just banging on everybody, um, but I think this this story in Luke is going to help illustrate what I frequently refer to in our in of uh, the state of the local church, because um, we do you know there, we have churches that simply don't believe the Bible. It's, that's evident. There are people, though, that believe that there are churches that believe the Bible and stand on the word of God uh, hard and fast. But for many in the church, they like to practice keeping their religion by rule keeping. It's and it's and it's and it's and it's not a small thing. This is a big thing. In fact, some some of those outside the church will know us by the way we keep our rules or they'll even know the rules that we keep. Frequently, it is sad to say, uh, we er erect barriers to grace because of our zealous law-keeping. We establish these uh, parameters for law-keeping and we impede the penetration of grace into our hearts or the spread of grace to our neighbors. We too frequently misunderstand the extravagance of God's grace. We get bogged down in the details of being right I mean, how many of you like to be right oh, yeah. <laughs> and sometimes we we <laughs> <you're right. laughs> yes at least at least somebody's going to shake his head no though it's a lie he's going to shake his head no i mean and so we we will go to all kinds of expenses in order to be right well these uh Th- these churches, if, if you're going to practice law keeping, then being right is really critical. And you, you know what right is. You want to be right. And, uh, and you're going to stand on that. Well, what happens in such a climate in a church, um, they will come to be practicing dead orthodoxy. So this legalism leads to dead orthodoxy. But then on the other hand, and this is true here in our area, while some are practicing dead orthodoxy, we have others practicing this shallow exuberance. So there's a, a big excitement, there's a, there's a lot of hype, but there's no depth to their understanding. And then either end of the scale, there's no or little evidence of real transformation by the Lord working in and through these people and transforming them to be more like Christ. So the story in this text today is a story of extravagant, extravagant grace. And there's two responses we're going to see to this grace. The first response is ex- external religiosity. And the second is enormous gratitude. And then the question that our text has for us today is how will you respond to grace have you have you ever have you ever experienced external religiosity i think it's fun to say but i have experienced it i i have i have been one who you know fell into this trap and it was easy for me to sit back and condemn or judge a neighbor provided that the sin that he's into is not the same as my sin as long as it's a different sin it's easy for me to condemn that it gets a little tricky when he's in the same sin as I am then I don't know what to do but this kind of thing this kind of thing is all over the place we see it everywhere it is very prevalent it has the form of religion but there's no real transformation 2nd Timothy 3.5 says that people will have the form of godliness but not know its power so people will go through these external motions to have the appearance of godliness but the power of the risen christ the word made flesh is not evident in their lives at all their external religiosity is bolstered by outward law-keeping how do they get here? Well, they have a partial view of Scripture, and these are people who, when you when you run onto them, you can tell they believe the Bible is true. So that's not the question. The people on the other end, sometimes you have to wonder if they even believe the Bible is true. On this end, they believe the Bible is true. So how do they get to where they are? Well, they have a partial view of Scripture without the context of the whole counsel of God. So they, in this um, partial view of Scripture, essentially create a God. In their own image. And then they choose, pick and choose those things that they're going to follow. And then they want to hold people accountable to that. And so as it turns out, instead of having people come to Christ and being conformed to him, they've created this God in their own image, they have people come to this faith, and what they end up wanting is people to look just like them. And so if you dress like we, like we do and you do these things that we do what you're what they're really doing is making converts to themselves to this false God because they have not been worshiping the Lord of life as he has revealed himself in the scriptures uh, this seems this seems like one of those simple things that just I'm overstating but Um, This is the same attitude that the Pharisees had in, in Jesus' day. And they expected a particular Messiah to come. So much so were their expectations that when Christ came and he's seated at your table, you don't recognize him. You don't recognize him. A truth that this story brings out is we cannot worship God the way we ought until we know him as he has revealed himself to be. Now, sometimes I have some clever statements I've woven in uh, from commentators. This is all me, and that's why it's cumbersome. But it's this is that truth. We cannot worship God the way we ought until we know him as he has revealed himself to be. And I could, I, I, could, I could talk a lot about that, and I'm not going to, we're going to move on. But but the, re, but the reality is, is if, if we don't know the whole counsel of God, we don't know how God has revealed himself to be, and so we take a portion of that that we can relate to, and we start building our God out of that. So these people who believe the Bible, but exercise it poorly uh, into law keeping, this is, this is their deal. They don't know him as he's revealed himself in the scriptures. Simon was a Pharisee who certain, certainly practiced this external religiosity. Yet, he recognized Jesus as a teacher of God. And so, f- because of that, he extended this uh, hospitality and invited him to come and eat with him. If you were entertaining a well-known religious leader, say it's Archbishop Foley, uh, Archbishop Foley Beach. If, if, if you were entertaining him in your home here where you live... And while you're entertaining him, uh, hosting him at dinner, a prostitute comes in to worship him, to thank him, to show her her, uh, gratitude. And what would your reaction be? Now... In our, in our, in our society, we would, you know, your doors are probably actually shut, especially if it's cold or, you know, really hot. You get, you know, so we're, if people just walking in your house already would be certainly a weird thing for us. And so it's not a one-for-one exchange, our culture to theirs. In their culture, this kind of comings and goings during mealtime would not be totally weird. But what is weird is that this woman, uh, comes to this Pharisee's house. And it's, and, it's, and, it's, and it's really not odd that the, the, the poor or the outcast would maybe come in and be able to see what's going on. Uh, that's, that, that piece, for their time and the way they did things, wouldn't be all that strange. Um, I had more of a kind of a community feel at big mealtimes. But we read Simon's reaction in verse 39 of what this woman, the reaction to what this woman is doing. Verse 39 says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so so this is not out loud, he's he's thinking this. If this this man were a prophet, so he's he's he's, he's not lambasting this woman yet. He's lambasting Jesus. Well, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon was very cold and calculated, not only to the woman, but also Jesus. He knew, he knew that he was right. He was very concerned about being right, and he was right. He knew that she was a sinner, and her reputation preceded her. He witnessed her expression of gratitude and devotion, but he couldn't recognize her sincerity. He didn't he, he, he couldn't get that. He he couldn't get her motives. He couldn't interpret her motives for why she was doing what she was doing. Like the church folk today who practice external religiosity, he might have thought that she should get cleaned up before presenting herself to Jesus, before coming in you know, let's get her into a Bible study, let's, let's clean her up and show her how to evangelize or something like that, but he couldn't even get started on his do-right checklist with this woman, and Jesus is receiving her gift. Well, that didn't make Simon happy either, the fact that Jesus was graciously receiving what she was giving to him. Simon was so determined with his expectations of others that he did not allow room for anything different. How? How do you, how, what does that say to you? How do you handle your expectations of others? Do you bind people by your initial judgments, by their outward appearance, by the way that maybe their reputation has preceded them? Or do you see the potential of who that person may become in Christ? With quiet authority. Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Answering him, so we'll say it, teacher. So in forty-one, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed five hundred denarii; the other fifty. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt for both. Now, which of them loved him more? Well, almost lethargically, Simon answered in forty-three. Uh, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said, you have judged rightly. And It doesn't sound like Simon's thoroughly convinced of that. It makes you wonder if Simon's seeing himself in the story. These both, both have debts. Both need their debts canceled. The one with the greater debt has a greater response for grace, is what he's saying. I'm not sure at this, but certainly prior to to this uh, parable being thrown out, Simon's not even aware of his indebtedness. He's not aware that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's not aware of what it's like to be in the presence of a holy God. He's in the presence of Jesus, and Jesus is shielding that holiness. And there's only some people that can see it. And I think this woman had seen it. On that day, two sinners were taught. The first one was confronted, and then the other one was comforted. I think that's what God's Word does to us. And God's Word, as we are sinners, God's Word confronts us, and God's Word comforts us. Jesus rebuked Simon with dramatic swiftness as he turned to the woman who was worshiping him in a tone vibrating with authority and indignation, and condemnation, he says to her, or says to him, I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears, and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Simon, at this time, obviously, by what Jesus is saying, Simon had committed several social errors and neglecting to wash Jesus' feet. You know, it's a, it's a courtesy that was extended to guests as they would come into your house from their dirty, sandal-covered feet. Um, the offering of kiss as a greeting. He didn't even do that. There's, there's a sense in which Simon is hosting him also for this outward act of religiosity. So that he has outward law keeping, he's he's keep he's he's hosting. So, I, you, well, look who I hosted him in my house. I I had I had dinner with him. Look look at me and who I hosted, but he hasn't cared for Jesus as he had him in his house. Yet this woman is lavishing tears and this expensive ointment on him. It's interesting that this woman the stranger of the house fulfills the role of the host while at the same time in this religious leader's house she's the one who recognizes the Messiah. Simon's external religiosity turned into dead orthodoxy. He had the form of godliness yet did not recognize God while he was seated at his table. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes dead orthodoxy. He says, There is nothing vital in the religion and in the worship of such people. They expect nothing and they get nothing and nothing happens to them. They go to God's house, not with the idea of meeting with God, not with the idea of waiting upon him. No, we always do this on Sunday morning. It is our custom. It is our habit. It is a right thing to do. But the idea that God may suddenly visit his people and descend upon them, the whole thrill of being in the presence of God and sensing his nearness and his power never even enters their imaginations. What about us? Do we expect to meet with God when we come into his house? How often does this idea enter your minds that we are in the presence of God as we come into this house and we and we want to worship and lift him up each week as we go through communion, we talk about how we have brought our uh, worship to him and then it's in the presence of all the saints who have gone before us and here's where I, I have I have great solace in uh, small numbers because when we enter into the presence of our Lord when we raise our our worship and our praises to him he and all the company of heaven, we're joined with them to sing his praises. And so we don't worship alone. So where at 1028, it was me and Burton and uh, Don and Jimmy, and I thought, well, if this is all there is, we're going to just join the company of heaven today. It de- The numbers really don't make a lot of difference in the sense that we're joining all those saints who have gone before us as we praise and worship our Lord. Do you recognize that when you're in the presence, that, and, and what is your expectation? Is it as convicting as Dr. Lloyd-Jones talks about, that this is our habit, this is what we do? Or are you expecting to meet the risen Savior today when you come to his house? So we've seen those results of external religiosity. That unnamed woman demonstrates a vital lesson for us as well. That extravagant grace received will produce enormous gratitude. That extravagant grace received will produce enormous gratitude. And if you so and quickly, if if you have if you have a friend who calls themselves a Christian and they're not thankful for anything, I think you need to share the gospel with them over and over and over again. And they've got to get the fact that they're really a sinner. That you know, it wasn't just something you just signed on to, but he is actually saving you from your sins. Some people mix this woman with the woman of Be- uh, Mary of Bethany or um, Mary Magdalene. But the, some com- what I've read and what I understand, there's no, really not enough biblical evidence to combine this woman with either of those other Marys. Um, this woman was likely known throughout the town because of her sin. And it would appear that this woman was a prostitute. And Luke protects her reputation by leaving her unnamed. She may have heard the message of Jesus uh, of forgiveness through Jesus. It may have been through John the Baptist, but what is evident from this passage is she has already heard this message of forgiveness. She's already received grace and that's, and, and she's coming in response to this to, to, to that. Um, in the flow of the passage, uh, one might think it's only because she came and did what she did that then she's receiving grace. that would be grace earned. Well, she's already received this grace, and she's coming in response to what she's heard, what she's received, how it's touched her, and that's how she's made her decision to uh, to come with what she uh, with this uh, flask of ointment. Um, this enormous gratitude empowered her to seek out Jesus wherever he was, and it's and and the rea- the stark contrast here is she, for crying out loud, came into the Pharisee's house. And though though there may have been a communal kind of uh, experience at, at mealtime, the idea that those who are known to be sinners throughout town would come into the Pharisee's house, who would do that? If, if, if you know some law-keeping Christians, and, and you, this say, B.C., before, before Christ for you, and, and you knew your sin was kind of blatant, Do you want to go hang around them and hear them condemn you for your sin? That answer would be no. Well, there's no reason she would want to come into the Pharisee's house. But she does because Jesus is there. It's the last place anybody would want to go. And then, if you think I'm stretching it, think of Simon's reaction to her. Simon calls Jesus out. Simon calls her out because she's there. And Jesus would have been reclined at the table. The table would have been like low. They would recline. Their feet would be away from the table, kind of like resting on their elbows as they ate. Table differently than what we understand, what we practice. But this woman, she came in great humility with worship. Um, She she wanted to worship in spirit and truth. It's a response from this grace she's received. And she didn't intend to interrupt this meal she quietly stood behind him to anoint his feet from this alabaster flask. And though in this passage it doesn't speak of the value of her perfume, it was likely quite costly. And it was certainly valuable to her. She brings the store she had saved to seduce men and with it anoints him, the purest of men. See, she, she had a purpose for this perfume, this ointment, and by grace, something's happening. Something's happening with this that she would have used. You know, if, if you're if you're if you're a prostitute, and you don't have much, and you are thought of as a uh, the lowest on the totem pole in society, what do you have? Okay, may, maybe there's some kind of clothes or whatever, but then there's this ointment you have that's that's going to be used to seduce men. But what does Jesus do with this? He accepts this gift. He accepts this gift which was its original purpose, its original intent was to seduce men, to propel or perpetuate her livelihood. Jesus knows the intent of that. He's not ignorant. He could have said, that's not holy enough for me. That's not sanctified enough for me. That came with wrong motives. But what does he do? He receives it. He receives this gift that she brought to him. And she, he turned this, this sign, this, this instrument of sin, of her sin, into something beautiful. He turned it into the devotion of a saint. It was a symbol of her penitence. She surrendered to the claims of Christ. Her tears flowed because she was overcome with the reality of her position before that holy God. She was left undone. And in the presence of Jesus, she was not too hardened in her sin to, be, to, to not be moved. She was fiercely moved because she understood the depth of, of her sin, and the depth of his forgiveness. His love pierced her heart, and she knew she had done nothing to deserve this forgiveness. Overcome by unmerited favor, what's her reaction? She worshiped. And again, with these friends who claim to be Christians, if they will not participate in worship, you need to share the gospel with them. They need to understand the depth of their sin and they need to understand the even greater depths of His grace. Because once one understands that and receives that grace, worship is what's going to happen. It's not not just something that might happen. It's not something that would happen if they could just conjure something up. Extravagant grace received will always lead to enormous gratitude. Gratitude. You know, I, I say this frequently, that we're actually bent from the fall toward works righteousness. And it is that basic problem that we have that where we always gravitate back toward legalism because of this works righteousness we'll will tend toward legalism, which is going to lead us back to dead orthodoxy and that empty religiosity. This woman is really our model of how to experience and receive grace. Her sins were many, according to Jesus. And the parable makes sense even at its first hearing. The woman and Simon illustrate the parable even more vividly. In one verse, Jesus proclaims judgment on Simon and and pronounces forgiveness for the woman in 747. He says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is, for, is forgiven little, loves little. That's, we, we, as we read that, we're like, well, praise Jesus that this woman who needed much forgiveness is going to love much. But if you're Simon, what is he saying to you? You think you had little to be forgiven of, and you love little, and you have not loved me. You see, this Simon couldn't escape the truth of Jesus. He didn't say you were a nice guy and you were around church a lot and you know, there's more good in you than bad and therefore in that scale of justice I'll let you in. He's explaining how you didn't love me. You had the appearance of loving me but you did not love me. First Titus, first uh, 1 Timothy 1.15 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's Paul writing. He recognized what Jesus came for. Jesus came to save sinners. The woman saw Jesus for who he is. She repented and then worshipped. She was reconciled to God and to fellow man all at that time. The hardened Pharisee had not received Jesus as the Son of God and was judgmental of Jesus and the woman. Philip Yancey, uh, in What's So Amazing About Grace, says, one who has been touched by grace will no longer look on others who stray as those evil people or those poor people who need our help. Nor must we search for signs of worthiness. Grace teaches us that God loves because of who God is, not because of who we are. And to that I say thank Jesus. This is because there is power in the freedom that grace brings. Romans 2, 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's his kindness that leads you to repentance. So this grace received, grace continually received, continually generates in us glad hearts, and repentance. The goodness of God and His acts toward others, toward man, brings us to repentance because His heart of love is shown to us. We are set free from the sin that binds us. And we are set free from the dominion of sin. And then we desire to obey the law of God and please our King. That freedom of grace is the enemy of empty religiosity. We do not keep the law in order to find favor with God. We na- and, and instead, we now have the desire to please him, and our enormous gratitude made of, motivates us to know the heart of God and strive toward joyful obedience. So what is your response to grace? Is your propensity toward empty religiosity like Simon Ask the Lord to, re, to release you from it and to reveal himself to you. Or have you e- embraced this extravagant grace like the woman? Hear him when he calls. Come. Do you wish for the ability to worship with enormous gratitude? You may need to be set free from a specific persistent sin. If so, run to him. Fall at his feet and worship the one who gave himself to save you. Then hear him say, your sins are forgiven. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.